Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 1007. To begin today's show, David Lorela has not one, but two guests, as he is joined by Spencer Strider and Andrew Miller in their respective returns to the podcast. Strider and Miller had not officially met previously, and they immediately get to talking about growing up as fans of each other's clubs, what kind of music they listen to, and how much they both enjoy Josh Tomlin. The pair also get into pitching, and Miller wonders how his career might have gone if he had come up today with the same science and knowledge that Strider has. What was the change in your your like pitch usage? I mean, did, did you did you noticeably or intentionally make a change in your arsenal? And and when you went to the pen, I mean, was there was it sort of your ability to focus on certain pitches, or or did you feel like you just kind of took your same starter approach and just condensed it into a, a shorter sample size? Yeah, I think uh, that's a great question because I think today if I were pitching and making the transition, we would have already had a bunch of data that would have, and, and we'd have had a change in philosophy that would have said, you know, throw your slider more often. And mm-hmm. that was never a conversation I really had with any of my pitching coaches or with, you know, certainly any front office people, but that was the trend and it happened pretty steadily. I think each year I almost added like 10% of usage on my slider until it got to about 60 or 65%, which would have been unheard of in 2011. If I had, if they had moved to the bullpen and I started throwing 70% sliders through April, they probably would have, you know, shut me down and said I was going to blow my arm out. In the second half, Ben Clemens invites Fangraphs contributor Alex Isert to be his next guest on the Fangraphs Backstories interview series. Alex shares his journey to arriving at Fangraphs, from starting fantasy baseball at nine years old to an inspirational Fangraphs meetup to writing for his college newspaper. We also hear about some of his favorite baseball memories, which involve Johan Santana, Alex Rodriguez, and the New York Yankees. Finally, Ben asks Alex about his recent article at the site on swing mirroring and some of the psychological forces at work in baseball. I also actually was a philosophy minor, so the the whole enterprise of, of philosophy is, you know, making an argument and then dreaming up counter arguments that you can argue yeah. against. But basically, so what Ash might say for this is that if the guy hitting before you get to hit, you want to emulate him and also swing because you think that he knows more than you in that he got a hit. Yeah. When I think of Ash conformity, I always think of, um, you know, how when you're a kid and your parents would tell you, would you jump off a bridge if your friends were yeah. doing it? Yep. And it's like almost definitely yes. Like, I don't <laughs> think they're stupid. And if all of them are doing it, like, there's probably a reason. Yep. Exactly. Maybe they know more than me, or I right. just want to fit in with them. I don't want to stand out as the there, guy who gets to jump off the bridge. high chance this bridge is not the place to be if all these people I trust are jumping off of it. Yeah. But before we get to these great segments, I must issue my weekly reminder for you to head on over and check out the Fangraphs.com shop. Not only can you scoop some sweet, sweet Fangraphs swag, but you can also pick up an ad-free membership, good for yourself or as a gift for a friend. Becoming a Fangraphs member is undoubtedly the best way to both browse the website and to support the website, helping us to do everything we do, from the daily articles to the roster resource pages to the leaderboards to the podcast to just plain keeping the lights on. We couldn't do it without your support. Thank you so very much. Enjoy the show. Hey, baseball fans, this is David Lorla, and I have two guests today. Each has been on the pod previously, and I think it's going to be a lot of fun to have them on together. And I don't believe that the two actually have met. So Spencer Strider, meet Andrew Miller. Andrew, meet Spencer Strider. (laughs) Nice to meet you, Spencer. (laughs) Yeah, nice to meet you. 
Yeah, you guys, uh, you know, one of you is a you know young pitcher, just started his career. One of you is, of course, a former pitcher. But uh, I discovered just a little bit ago that, Spencer, you made your big league debut on October 1st, 2021. Andrew, you made your final big league appearance on the same day. So that's, that's pretty cool. It's sort of the passing of uh, the torch, so to speak. Absolutely. Yeah. It's uh, pretty interesting. I, I felt like, uh, you know, I couldn't remember if we overlapped much at all or anything. And I guess the reality is I ended when he began. So we definitely didn't overlap. <laughs> I, I feel like we have some connection. It's only on my end because, of course, he, he can't appreciate this. But I grew up a massive Cleveland fan. So I remember when he was traded to Cleveland and going, I was, went to the World Series in 2016 and, and, you know, the games in 17 when they went on the winning streak and everything. And so uh, I feel like I'm far. I'm definitely far more familiar with Andrew Miller than he is with me. Well, I'm sure that Andrew is familiar with you, Spencer, given that uh, you were the runner-up on the for the Cy Young Award. So um, I think people know who you are. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Andrew. Actually, uh, I I think I know this, but I don't recall which team did you grow up rooting for. You know, I grew up a Braves fan because. I kind of predated the Marlins and definitely the Rays, the, the Devil Rays at the time. And the Braves were on TV every day or you know, every night on TBS. We could watch the Braves. And I grew up, I kind of, my formative baseball fan years were, you know, I remember the worst of first Braves is probably about the first time I sat down and watched, you know, baseball on TV. So I kind of caught them at a good time. I grew up, uh, you know, watching some of the best, you know, maybe one of the best rotations in baseball for a long time. I was Steve Avery for Halloween. So Definitely a Braves fan, and uh, you know, I think they kind of got a hold of me, and the, the Florida teams came a little bit late. I did think that was the case. That so, you guys actually have quite a bit in common, <laughs> outside of being a righty and a lefty, and maybe what twelve or fourteen years of uh, of age difference. Uh, probably more. <laughs> yeah, yeah, probably more than that. <laughs> I'm trying to make Andrew seem maybe a little bit younger than he is. <laughs> So, hey, so this is the first that you guys have interacted. Let's, and you did you know, cross paths as far as the same year, same month in, in the major leagues. Suppose uh, the two of you were meeting in a clubhouse in, say, September of two years ago. What do you think your first conversation would have been like? Would you guys have basically said, hey, let's talk pitching or, or what might it have been? I probably would have tried to just keep my eyes down and not freak out and then just go to my locker and be a rookie. But I'm not sure. I'm not sure what – that's kind of how our clubhouse was, at least when I came up, or at least that's how it was two years ago. This year, we were a little, it was a little younger, a little more welcoming, but I don't know what – you know, I've heard some some stories of guys needing to be quiet and just sort of kind of earning your stripes and that kind of stuff. So I think my, my intuition has been to just kind of stay – out of everybody's way and ask questions when I need answers, but, but don't get too comfortable. Yeah. I, I can appreciate the old school kind of, you know, rookies got to earn their place. Don't sit on the couch, that type of stuff. But I would hope I'd be a little bit more welcoming. Uh, I think that probably, you know, introduce myself and probably start with, you know, kind of what's your background? Where are you from? You know, did you go to college? Did you sign out of high school? Uh, where'd you grow up? That type of thing. What's your path to get here? And I, I would imagine from there, it would kind of roll pretty smoothly. Yeah. And Spencer, would you have said to Andrew in the clubhouse in that first meeting that, hey, I used to be a big fan of yours when you were pitching in Cleveland, or would you have held that back for a while? I probably would have saved that one. So when I when I came up uh, two years ago, Josh Tomlin was was with the Braves. And he, of course, you know, another Cleveland great in my mind. And so 
he was actually, he came directly up to me. I walked into the clubhouse and it was the day after the Braves had clinched the division. And so guys were coming in late. Like they were all kind of just, you know, there's three games left on the schedule and they didn't mean anything. And, um, I didn't want to, you know, get too excited, get anybody's way or anything. And he came over to my locker and introduced himself. And he actually gave me a pair of pants because they couldn't find any that fit me. And he, he treated me like, like a normal dude. And it was, it was very cool. And I ended up telling him like, you know, I kind of had a, had a, a big appreciation for him and, and watching his career, which was neat. Yeah, that that's funny you mentioned that name. That was kind of going to be my uh, my hopefully something we could connect over would be Josh Tomlin. I'm surprised you could understand him when he was talking to you, but uh, <laughs> I would hope I, I I am not Josh. He is about as good of a teammate as I've ever had. He, you know, he probably you know if he's not in the running, he is the guy. You know, I would hope that I would have the same welcoming approach and. I'm not as vocal as him, but, you know, I think I'm a big believer in clubhouse culture and, and guys like Josh are key to that. And, you know, doing something like that is huge and hopefully help you felt comfortable as quickly as possible. And, you know, therefore let you go out and play and and be successful and help the Braves win games. So I feel like we could probably sit down and spend however much time you've got David talking about Josh Tomlin stories, but We'll, uh, we'll, we'll try to keep those to a minimum, although uh, that's pretty hard to do. You know, pretty awesome guy, and I'm glad we have him in common. I'm glad you got to experience him. Yeah, I, I don't think we're going to do a full pod here on Josh Tomlin's stories, <laughs> and I wasn't, I wasn't planning to bring up Josh, but I think I'm obligated now to ask for a Josh Tomlin story. Oh, gosh. I wouldn't even know where to start. Uh, I'd have to go back through the, the Rolodex of everything he did. His locker, so I had Corey Kluber between he and I. And if you're familiar with Corey, Corey doesn't say a whole lot. So I think uh, between Corey and I, all we got was Josh talking all the time. But, you know, really just an incredible guy. You know, I'll never forget what he did, you know, pitching in that playoff run. Uh, his dad was going through some stuff. And, you know, for him to go out there and, and have the bravery to throw 82, 83 mile hour fastballs is really something else in a, in a World Series setting. And But, you know, really just an awesome guy. And, uh, you know, I think Spencer's story is exactly sums up who he is. Uh, I think he'll be in this game for a long time beyond being a player because of that type of stuff. Yeah. Spencer, do you have a story? Uh, Not really. I mean, I wasn't around him for all that long. I I could try and poorly recount stories that were told to me about him from guys that knew him better, but I won't do that. Yeah. I mean, I think my story is just just how he how he kind of treated me like a like a normal guy and, and was very helpful. And when I came up and, and like I said, it was kind of a weird time because they had the team had just clinched the division and I was in the bullpen for the first time, never coming out of the bullpen. And uh, yeah, he was super, uh, super helpful and very, very courteous. Well, locker mates just just got brought up. Andrew, who did you have lockers next to when you first got called up to the big leagues? Uh, when I first got called up, I believe I was between Curtis Granderson and Omar Infante. Grandy is, of course, uh, one of baseball's uh, great, well, ambassadors, really, right? Absolutely. Yeah, he uh, he obviously was an outstanding player, but yeah, a, a really good guy. He did a lot, uh, you know, particularly for the Players Association, but just as a kind of a, a vocal leader for, for baseball in general and really uh, a guy that you know, I think the whole industry kind of looks towards for things and, uh, you know, really, you know, did as much off the field as he did on the field. Spencer, what about you? When you got called up, who did you have uh, next to you, locker-wise? Yeah, I was between Austin Riley and Dansby Swanson. And both of those guys were, were very nice. And, you know, they were Austin more so than Dansby. He's a little bit younger. And so they they were um, a little more comfortable to be around some of the, the Freddie Freemans and the uh, Charlie Mortons, who's, and Charlie has 
turned out to not be a scary figure at all, even though he wasn't right when I got called up. And Dansby talked to me a lot about Clemson football because he's a big SEC supporter and, of course, was was a little contentious that I went to Clemson. And so that was a topic of conversation. And those guys were, those guys were cool and they're obviously great players and they were fun to be teammates with uh, last year for a whole season. Well, and uh, Andrew went to UNC, so the two of you would probably uh, give each other sort of side eye in the clubhouse once in a while, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Maybe not so much for football, but we'll see here in the coming years. Yeah, every every now and then, I think uh, some ribbing is worthwhile, whether uh, you know the, the teams, the schools are playing each other in some sport or or whatnot. But I coexisted with Dominic Leon, so I'm trying to think any other Clemson <laughs> Tigers I've played with, but. Uh, yeah, it would be more good, good-natured ribbing than anything. Right. If anything, it's probably a lot more that we have in common. Those experiences of playing in the ACC, playing in you know, in some cases at least the same stadiums and against the same coaches and stuff. Right. Yeah, Spencer, you were intimidated by uh, Charlie Morton. Char- yeah, Charlie. So Charlie is is one of the greatest people I've ever met. I mean, to say the least. The guy. I mean, he has a phenomenal sense of humor, which I can I can sort of appreciate and and I, I share as well. Where we like to make other people uncomfortable. And so before you get to know him, he kind of he kind of messes with you in like a very benign way. And there's certain things he'll do that as as you try to figure him out are are very interesting. And so when I got when I came up, of course we didn't have a, a, a massive interaction, but the one thing he did do was when I came out of the game after my first appearance, I'd given up a home run and I'd I was just, you know, it was my first time in the big leagues and I was a little not flustered, but just kind of, you know, your, your mind's going a million miles an hour and all that stuff. And so he talked to me just about random stuff for like five minutes in the dugout and it just kind of like took my mind off what just happened and, and kind of brought me back down. And that, and that was cool. I, I grew to appreciate that even more as I saw other guys come up and make their first appearance and kind of go through the same thing and see it. Not that I had a, a bunch of wisdom or experience to bestow on anybody, but you know, it's just those, those types of things are, are how guys learn. And, and, you know, he's, he's a phenomenal teacher and, and a great teammate. Yeah. Andrew, were you intimidated by anybody when you, you came to the Tigers very early after getting drafted and there were some pretty notable players on that team. It wasn't just simply uh, Curtis Granderson. <laughs> I think Curtis was a rookie that year. So yeah, it was a little different. You know, there were some very intimidating figures. Uh, I think probably the the biggest one for me was Pudge was catching. And uh, I think I walked into the clubhouse and I honestly had been in pro ball. So such a short period of time that I didn't really I didn't I wasn't prepared for really anything. I didn't even know to expect like what type of hazing or where to go or how to dress or anything. So I ended up getting a lot of help. But Pudge definitely kind of pulled a, a similar stunt on me, asking me as the rookie to, to go get coffee in a very colorful way. And in the end, he ended up being awesome to me. And I think he's just kind of breaking you in and they're feeling you out. And, you know, that was a team I didn't really contribute, but went on to the World Series and, and lost to the Cardinals. But I think teams that are good are going to have some sort of culture that, you know, welcomes young players or welcomes new players to, you know, get in and and get comfortable and get their feet on the ground and get grounded as quickly as possible so they can contribute in a positive way. And, you know, I look back on a lot of that as being, I think to Spencer's point earlier, very scary and very intimidating, but at the end of the day, it was very welcoming. And, you know, I'll never forget the day I got called up, we actually got rained out and we were kind of in a long rain delay and we were playing uh, Texas Hold'em and, uh, you know, playing cards with you know, Verlander and Kenny Rogers and Jeremy Bonderman and, and Todd Jones and all these guys. 
I kind of got forced in the game against my will. And in hindsight, it was one of those things that kind of broke the ice and really, you know, helped me kind of being a part of that team. So intimidating and scary, but at the end of the day, it ended up being awesome. So Spencer is, of course, very intimidating when, when he's on the mound. When you think <laughs> back, Andrew, to your former teammates, who do you think maybe was most similar to, to Spencer as a pitcher? As intimidating on the mound? Oh, I don't know. I played with some some big guys. Uh, I think that's probably the first thing is when you look out there and you see a guy that's just huge. Obviously, Verlander, um, you know, has kind of a big, tall body, but, you know, Lackey and Beckett, uh, John Lester, they all kind of had these these stares. I think that everybody kind of followed Beckett to an extent in those on those Boston teams and followed his lead. And he kind of had this this glare and this look to him all the time that he was very distant. And you didn't want to mess with him. And uh, I think it went a long way. And I would imagine if you ask Josh where he got that from, it's probably a, a Nolan Ryan type story. Yeah. Spencer, are you intimidating on the mound? I wouldn't think so. I, I've never been described as intimidating. So I appreciate you labeling me that <laughs> for the first time. Unless you find mustaches and peace signs to be intimidating, which I doubt I doubt there's many that do. Yeah. I'm thinking you're power arsenal more than uh, appearance. Yeah. But I imagine there's some people who look out on the mound and think, well, that dude looks scary. I hope that people aren't excited to get in the box. I, you know, I hope I'm giving an uncomfortable at bat. That's kind of the goal. So, yeah, you know, the stuff over appearance. <laughs> yeah, how uncomfortable of an at bat, Spencer? Do you think Michael Harris would be if he was on the mound? I assume Ooh. you're familiar with his pitching prowess as an amateur. Right. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't like facing Mike. So the best thing that ever happened was us playing on the same team. Yeah. So I can't imagine what he's like when he's on the mound. But I, I don't think you ever want to be opposing him in any type of physical competition because he he will likely beat you. <laughs> yeah. What was it like, Spencer, going into the rookie of the year balloting, knowing that you and he were probably going to go one, two? Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it, was, it was it was cool. I mean, we, we joked about it a lot, uh, especially as it got closer and the season was over. And, and I was actually on my honeymoon with my wife. And so we weren't we weren't watching or a part of the the whole thing. And, and you know, we, we knew that Mike was was going to win and that's that's deservedly so so it was kind of nice to just kind of watch it and and be happy for him and you know for him to come up when he did straight from double a and and do what he did and just solidify the the defense and center field and 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 even our lineup it was just adding his his skill set to the lineup was huge and so yeah you know his his season was was unbelievable and, and i i can't i can't even begin to imagine what he'll do this next year and years, years afterwards yeah, so congrats on the marriage, of course. Where did you and your wife go on the honeymoon? Yeah, thank you. We went to the Keys just for a couple of days, and and we actually weren't going to go on one because it was like right before Thanksgiving, and we were going out of town for Thanksgiving, and we decided, ah, you know what, we might as well go treat ourselves for a couple of days, and it ended up being nice. And so, yeah, we're, we're, we're both pretty routine-oriented, and we were kind of excited to get back to, to Tennessee where we live and me get working out and her kind of move into a house and that kind of stuff, but it was it was good. Andrew, I believe that you did some traveling recently as well. I've been all over the place. My wife has taken full advantage of uh, not having a schedule and off-season training to worry about. So we've been trying to make up for lost time, I believe. Yeah, I was actually in the Keys in early December. I think I must have just missed you down there uh, on Duval Street. And then uh, over New Year's, we were actually in Austria and uh, Germany for a little bit. So wow. doing some traveling, seeing the world. I feel like I've seen the, a good portion of the states through baseball, but uh, pretty limited beyond that. So trying to make up for lost time and uh, and take those vacations that I haven't been able to take over the years. Yeah. Where did you go in Austria, Andrew? 
we went to Kitzbühel, which is a uh, kind of like a, a ski town in the mountains in the Alps. And uh, while the snow was not exactly uh, perfect, I think the the polar ice bomb or whatever it hit the states. They were having record heat over in Europe. It was still a, a lot of fun. It was beautiful over there and a, a great experience. Yeah. So no Vienna or Graz. No, just Kitzbühel in Austria, and then a little bit of time in Munich. Very good. Yeah. Uh, with off seasons in mind, you have had a lot of experience with them, uh, Spencer. You have not in in pro ball. So what does outside of getting married? Like, how are you approaching the off season? Is it hey, I want as much downtime as possible, or is a little the man on the other shoulders whispering in your ear, man, we've got to work out. We've got to be ready. We have to work out. Yeah, I'd say that that man has kicked the other guy off off my shoulder. And there's just one guy and he lives lives in my brain. I, I If it was up to me, the season would never end. I would stay in, in Atlanta or Florida and and work out and pitch and and just just do baseball 24 seven. But that is, as I've learned, not not conducive necessarily to success. There There is something to be said for taking a break and changing scenery and kind of diversifying your interests and your, and your time. And um, yeah, I I think that adapting to sort of the instability of, of the pro schedule has helped my personality, just handling inconsistency and, and changes and things like that. And as a result, I've, I've kind of learned to do or follow my interests in the off season while still satisfying all my training needs and my, my throwing needs and all that. And as a result, it's been, the off seasons have been a lot more appealing and enjoyable. Andrew, you should uh, you should address that. Uh, has your off season? Did your off season rather routine change over the years? Yeah, it, it changed a lot, and I think the culture of what an off season meant for a major league player changed during my career quite a bit. I wouldn't say that it was quite like you know do nothing in the off season and show up and get ready in spring training, but it was a lot closer to that than it is now. Now, guys, and if you want to keep up, you kind of have to be a part of the system where to Spencer's point, they almost don't take any time off. And I know that kind of when I, in order for me to stay healthy and for me to, you know, try to go out and improve upon the year before, that's, that's almost what it takes. You, you get a, a short period of time, maybe a couple of weeks, and then the holidays obviously cannibalize a little bit of your time. But for the most part, you're, you're at least hitting the weight room right away. And then pitchers are throwing, you know, in some cases, probably more, but, you know, at least eight or 10 or 12 bullpens before you show up to spring training. So it's much more competitive. And I think we see the product on the field. I think you see the guys throwing harder than ever. You see guys, you know, look more physical than they ever have. And and that's the reason why. If that's the best thing for you, I don't know. Uh, I think to Spencer's point as well about having a balance and, and you know, both physically and, and mentally being able to take a break from the game is healthy. But if you want to compete and you want to show up and, and, and help your team and help yourself, you almost have to keep your foot on the gas year-round. Spencer mentioned uh, off-season interest just a few minutes ago. We're talking on Wednesday. Uh, my wife and I are actually going to go and hear Brunson Royal perform at uh, a club club here uh, in the Boston area. His band is playing, which I think should be pretty fun. What are the two of you likely to do music-wise in the off-season? Well, so <laughs> music is certainly one of my main interests uh, just all the time but uh yeah seeing bronson arroyo that'll be pretty neat i remember growing up and he was playing and the, the, his whole thing was he was you know he was a singer and a guitar player in this and i always thought that was very cool because that was one of my interests and something i did as well and we i actually with some of my friends and i've, I've kind of got colin McHugh in on it because he's a he's a big music fan as well we rank music we sort of have like our own pitchfork music ranking 
and uh, we're listening to albums all the time. And, and I've started collecting vinyl, which is something I've always wanted to do. And, and Colin and I are always bouncing music off each other, going to concerts, something we're trying to do more. And so, yeah, that's, that's one of my favorite parts of the off season, just the opportunity to like do things that happen at night because we can't do those things in, in season. So and that's, and music pursuit is certainly one of them. And what is on the top of your pitchfork list, Spencer? Well, so my, my pitchfork list is, is attempting to counter whatever pitchfork thinks. And as a result, we have some pretty interesting rankings and, and it's kind of, kind of catered to our style of music, but Mac DeMarco's album, This Old Dog is actually our highest rated album on the list. And Andrew, what about you? What What is the last concert that you and your wife saw? The last one, I don't know. We try to go quite a bit. I can tell you what I have ahead of me. I know we have Jason Isbell here in about a week, I believe. I think John Mellencamp is coming and playing a smaller theater. Springsteen, I believe tickets are coming up. Although that might be a ways out. I know that was one of those ones that the Ticketmaster kind of went crazy on and they might've been selling those. That might even be 2024, but yeah, I, I love going to concerts. Uh, I love music. Live music is pretty hard to beat. And especially now that I have plenty of free nights going out and getting a good meal and going to a concert, it's about the ideal evening for me. No, that's pretty cool. I'm realizing here as, as we speak that I have not been doing much concerting in the last few years, COVID having a lot to do with it. And I think that uh, when I got COVID, last April, last May, actually. I think I got it at a concert. So <laughs> I hope nobody has the Bronson Arroyo show has uh, has COVID. Well, actually, that reminded me, I think the last two concerts I've been to, or at least the last two kind of more standout significant ones would be, uh, I went out to Red Rocks twice. And one of them was for Jason Isbell and one of them was for the Turnpike Troubadours. And uh, mm. that's one of those things that was pretty much impossible to do as an active player. And I got an email I guess because I had been to an Isbell concert before and said they were doing Red Rocks. And I kind of just on a whim bought the tickets and figured out I'll find time to go out there and, and you know, make a trip out of it. And, uh, you know, highly recommended. You know, it's, it's it's not the what is it, the Ryman that's in Nashville, but it's a cathedral on its own right and a, a really awesome experience. Yeah. Spencer, have you been to Red Rocks uh, just outside of Denver? I have not. Highly recommended. Um, I've been there once, uh, and I'm showing my age here. I saw Bonnie Raitt and Randy Newman perform there, and I th think maybe 1978 or 79. And I recall that the whole, I don't know, the whole venue, the whole canyon was filled with uh, aromatic smoke that was coming <laughs> from uh, <laughs> from the crowd. It's not any different now. <laughs> no, it, it probably <laughs> is not. You know, uh, you know what we should do, guys, before we go? Uh, we actually have not talked pitching, uh, which I thought we were going to do more of. So let's uh, let's talk pitching. Spencer, you watched a lot of Andrew um, as a player, as you mentioned. Ask him uh, a pitching question. <laughs> wow. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess I guess my like I said earlier, my my first sort of recollection of, of Andrew was when he was with the Yankees. And he was, you know, arguably the best reliever in baseball and then was traded to Cleveland and obviously had an unbelievable, you know, historic run in the playoffs. And I, I mean, the, as somebody who had to sort of make that transition from starting to relieving, and then I'm obviously I'm starting now, it's just like, what, what was that transition like having been a starter for so long? I mean, when did it, did it feel at some point like you wanted to be in the bullpen? Were you glad that that was, decision was made or... Or how long did it take where you were finally comfortable coming out of the pen? 
I was a failed and pretty terrible starter for a, quite a while, actually. So I debuted in 06, and then I really didn't become a full-time reliever until 2011. And I became a full-time reliever, not by choice, but because that was kind of the end of the line for me. And uh, I knew that, you know, I, I wasn't really, you know, I didn't want to be a 4A player, but teams weren't going to just hang on as I, I was no longer a prospect. I was a lot more suspect at that point. <laughs> and I was very fortunate. I was on a, a team in Boston that even though we had, we had a, a really terrible year, as David would remember, uh, a lot of a lot of things went on uh, that were pretty negative with that team. But I had a great experience in making that transition. I think, you know, there is definitely a lot of credit should go to Bobby Valentine. You're not going to hear that often in Boston, but he was really good in the way that he used me. And then I got really lucky with the guys I shared the bullpen with. And I just tried to absorb and learn as much as I could from them. And, you know, like I said, I I tried to be very positive about it. I, I, it wasn't, I didn't go dragging my feet. I knew that it was an opportunity that I almost, you know, I, I was running out of opportunities really. And I got put into a great group and just tried to absorb as much as I could. And I think the way that it really kind of took off for me is when I, was able to phrase it that it was an opportunity to work on my craft more regularly as a starter. Those four days in between, I always felt were such a waste and I didn't get, I almost like had a hard time finding out what to do with those four days in between. Whereas as a reliever, particularly as a lefty specialist, which is kind of how I was used, I I warmed up, you know, literally almost every day. I I probably was on the mound 140 times that year. And every time it was a chance for me to work. And every time I felt like I got, you know, just kind of that one, interval better. And, uh, it kind of took off and it's a lot more fun to be successful at something. And I I had not been a successful starter in a while. And that was kind of a grind and to go out there and feel like I was helping a team win. And, you know, my teammates were behind me and I was a contributing factor really kind of changed everything for me and and just kind of took off. What was the change in your, your like pitch usage? I mean, did, did you, did you noticeably or intentionally make a change in your arsenal? And, and when you went to the pen, I mean, was there, was it sort of your ability to focus on certain pitches or, or did you feel like you just kind of took your same starter approach and just condensed it into a, a shorter sample size? Yeah, I think uh, that's a great question because I think today, if I were pitching and making the transition, we would have already had a bunch of data that would have, and, and we'd have had a change in philosophy that would have said, you know, throw your slider more often. And Mm -hmm. that was never a conversation I really had with any of my pitching coaches or with, you know, certainly any front office people, but that was the trend and it happened pretty steadily. I think each year I almost added like 10% of usage on my slider until it got to about 60 or 65%, which would have been unheard of in 2011. If I had, if they had moved to the bullpen and I started throwing 70% sliders through April, they probably would have, you know, shut me down and said I was going to blow my arm out. Mm -hmm. Uh, I almost had to prove a, that I could do it. And then the game was kind of changing at the same time. So it wasn't something I set out to do, but I think no longer being a prospect that was trying to develop, I was kind of able to do what I wanted to do a little bit more. And I didn't have the fear of going back to the dugout after throwing, say, a 2-0 slider for a ball and getting questioned about why would you choose that pitch? You have to throw a fastball here. Things that you probably don't even have to deal with anymore. But, you know, the the thinking was so different back then about what pitch you should throw and what count. And, you know, my ability to command my slider better than my fastball was something that just would have fallen on deaf ears at that time. I almost had to prove it, you know, over time. And so that was big. And then, you know, going back to the Bobby Valentine thing, I basically dropped a windup and I dropped having a leg kick. I, I 
started pitching essentially with a, a slide step all the time. And it, it's not right. a crazy fast slide step that I use, but it really simplified my mechanics and it really let me go out and just have one type of mechanic and also one that was quick and simple that worked with my body. And I always had timing issues. And the more time I had lifted my leg or went through a windup, the more trouble I put myself into. And, you know, credit to Bobby, that was something that he kind of pushed for and almost basically told me I was going to do it. And it ended up being great for me. What were the justifications for, you know, pitch usage? Like, were you able to identify why a pitch was good? Or why you could use your slider more? Or was it strictly results-based in-game? And and kind of, is that why it took so long for you to be able to throw that pitch more? Well, as far as I know, it was strictly results-based. Uh, you know, the Red Sox, who I was with at the time, are definitely a very forward-thinking, you know, they were at the cutting edge of analytics. I don't know what type of, you know, information they were getting about my pitches, but it's not like I sat down in spring training or I had, you know, somebody come down or the pitching coach pull me aside and say, Hey, you know, your breaking ball does this. You need to use it more often. Now, I think that conversation happens pretty much everywhere. I think it was just, a we were in that transition phase of the old school, you know, you throw a fastball when you're behind in the count, you do this, you do that, you, know, you need a change up. And you know, I always struggled with the change up. So I spent a lot of times as a starter trying to find a change up. So I was throwing a third pitch. It just wasn't very good. Mm-hmm. And things like that, I think, you know, no longer being the prospect that they were trying to develop and now just being a guy that was trying to help the team was a big difference maker for me. And, you know, I would like to think that, you know, I have no complaints about my career. I, I beat the system. Uh, I live the dream, all that stuff. But I would like to think that today a pitcher going through what I went through might find it a little quicker. You know, I really enjoyed sharing my experience in the bullpen as I got older and had more experience with younger guys and, and Hopefully I was a help to them and maybe finding their success and whatnot a little bit earlier in their career. But I think it was just a little bit of a different path. It's it's not that long ago, but I feel like the way, you know, particularly pitching and analytics has evolved, it feels like, you know, eons ago. And analytics are, uh, of course, right up Spencer's alley. So maybe touch on some of what Andrew was saying as far as mechanics and uh, pitch usage, really how they relate to you as a pitcher. Okay. I mean, I, I feel like I kind of what he was saying about how, you know, that's why I asked about what, what the time frame was like in terms of identifying how valuable or effective a pitch could be and, and when to, to cut a pitch out or understanding why you might be better out of the stretch compared to the windup, that kind of stuff. Like, I think that obviously the technology enables you to identify some of those things quicker. But I think from, from my experience, just the, and obviously I wasn't in the big leagues, you know, when, when Andrew was, except for three days, but <laughs> you know, you can kind of look at a guy now and sort of take the, the the big picture and and determine why this fastball is better than this fastball and pitching in this spot's better than this spot and and why a, even a windup might be better than a stretch or vice versa. And so with me, I, I I think the trap is to try to get more complicated and sort of take on things that you you think make you better or you think are going to be needed at the big league level and when reality, it's really the simplification of sticking to your strengths and consistently doing what got you there and what's made you good. You know, I, I finished the 2020 year at the alt site and I was throwing harder. We identified, I finally had like good analysis on my fastball to, to say, yes, throw a four seam fastball. It's very effective. It's a plus fastball. But I decided to try to throw a cutter, curveball, slider, change up and sinker that off season Came into spring training in my first bullpen, I might have thrown one strike. And they said, hey, you're terrible. What the heck's going on? 
So the simplification based on the data that said you have one really good pitch, why wouldn't you throw that the most allowed me to, to sort of get back on track. Whereas I think, especially as a starter, you know, the trap is to want to throw a bunch of pitches. Like I, I wanted to throw my changeup last year, but it wasn't necessary. It's not, there's no point in working something in that isn't effective, that isn't plus. And so I'm sure that if Andrew had had somebody tell him that, it would have been super helpful to hey say like hey you don't have to th- you can throw however many pitches you want you don't have to you can, usage can be whatever it needs to be because it's just about getting favorable results at the plate yeah and I think that that's the you know that's kind of the goal and I think we have everything it's you don't want to go too far in one direction but you know analytics are this tool and I think that even if they were going on they weren't something that was a collaboration between the player and the the staff like I see now and like I see evolving and. I think having access to that stuff, so does everybody else. So it's not like you're on, you know, some unlevel playing field, but in a lot of ways, yeah, you can, you can get to answers that weren't probably traditionally accepted, you know, as recently as 10 or 15 years ago, you know, we see an entire league that seems to want to throw fastballs up right now. And, you know, you used to almost kind of get in trouble if you threw any fastball up unless it was O2 and it was above the zone, you know, that was the reality now we found out that, you know, a lot of guys thrive, particularly, you know, once we can, you know, incorporate understanding what spin rate means and all that stuff. Whereas back, you know, back in the day, you know, not that long ago, that was the type of thing that was a mistake every time. And, you know, you could strike a guy out on a fastball up or give him to pop up on a two, one fastball up. And, you know, you'd come in the dugout and you'd hear, well, you got away with one there, you know, get the ball down. And the reality is you actually probably just threw your, you know, your best pitch to your best spot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Spencer, when did you learn that? How early that the fastball up was your best weapon? It was right before I, I had Tommy John at Clemson. We, we had a TrackMan device installed into the stadium. And so it was really my first time throwing with any data. And we found out I was spinning the ball at 2,600. And it was it was a four-seam fastball. And I was trying to make it sink because I always we always thought you wanted the ball to move. If it moved, they couldn't hit it. And so stopped trying to throw two seams and started to try to throw four seams. And, and I was just working on throwing the ball right down the middle and missing up and guys couldn't hit it. And then when I got hurt shortly after that, I rebuilt my mechanics to incorporate that strength. And that being the, the centerpiece of my arsenal and those characteristics of the pitch were sort of accentuated by the changes I made through the Tommy John rehab. And, and that uh, has sort of stuck to this day. And it's, I think that, you know, yeah, I'm always, I always like to talk to guys, especially when we're facing a good four seam pitcher, you know, guys, guys on our team, when they're hitting, you know, what are they looking for? How do you, how do you, especially a guy with velocity? I mean, what, how do you, how do you cover both pitches? And then, you know, the, the short answer is you can't, but it's, it's, it's interesting to hear. Cause I think that that, like Andrew was saying that the, you know, the, the fad of throwing up in the zone doesn't apply to everybody. I mean, there really are only, only certain pitches that can play up there and certain guys throw a four seam fastball that might be, it might look like it can play up on the zone, but because of their extension or their, their release height or, or whatever else it is, their lack of deception, it, it doesn't produce the results that one might expect a ball spinning at whatever metrics should up in the zone. And so I don't think it's a one size fits all. And that's, that's where technology can be misleading at times. And I, I in my circumstance, it was just, it was the one thing I needed to kind of make a change in the right direction when I was in college. Yeah, Andrew, any uh, pitching questions that you would have for uh, for Spencer? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, that's the direction I was going to go is I, I'm fascinated by these guys that, you know, like Spencer, who are, are younger, that were exposed to this earlier on. And I think a lot of probably what took me extra time to 
find success was, you know, not knowing how to interpret that type of stuff and not knowing how to make a change. I, I, I still, even at the end of my career, I was a very, very much a field pitcher and I felt like I didn't speak the language. And, you know, the, the Cardinals new pitching coach, Dusty Blake was a guy that they hired basically to kind of be this bridge between, you know, the, the analytics side and the traditional pitching coach. And he does such a good job of being able to communicate to someone like me, who's, you know, almost kind of behind the curve and all that. So it can be done. I just think it's a matter of how you communicate. And, you know, every, every person is different. Everybody needs to hear things different ways to, to have it click for them. So I just think it's fascinating. But yeah, just listening to him talk about how he uses data or how he would go to use data, I think is something that I would like to understand better as I watch guys. But hearing Spencer talk, I guess one thing stood out is he said he rebuilt his mechanics. Did you pick somebody or did you just have checkpoints that you really wanted to focus on? How? What do you mean when you say you rebuilt your mechanics? Yeah, I, I did. I modeled a lot of it or specifically certain movements or certain positions after different guys. A lot of it was built around guys who were pitching for Cleveland at the time, but but that was, I think, more coincidental. I think one of the guys I looked at was Trevor Bauer, somebody who had elite spin and pitched for the four-seam fastball and didn't get hurt was another big um, characteristic I was looking for. But I took pieces from Hugh Darvish and and Garrett Cole was another big one, Jacob deGrom, guys guys with four-seam fastballs, this, this stuff that that I aspired to have and, and I felt like was attainable. You know, obviously when I was a 21 year old in college, I wasn't attempting to be Jacob deGrom, but I felt like there were uh, steps I could take that would sort of help me get in that direction. A lot of it was getting on time with my back leg. I have a strong lower half utilizing that part of my body more that involved, you know, changing my hip direction and some of my, my rotational timing. I shortened my arm path to try to sync up better and increase my extension. It lowered my release height as well. All of those things were things that were shared by guys with good four-seam fastballs that were able to pitch up in the zone that had high in-zone miss rates. And that just sort of all went together very well. My rehab was very clean and, and um, I was able to sort of continue to, to work on those things without the pressure of performance because of COVID. And I think that was very helpful as well. Yeah. I, I think maybe I, if I missed my era, I, I should have pitched before or earlier because all that stuff makes my head hurt to think about trying to throw a baseball <laughs> with all that. And it's a, it's amazing that, you know, you've done it and you can do it and you can think that way. And I don't know what it, if I came, if I came along 10 years later, I, I don't know if I would have made it having all this, I would have had information overload probably and gotten myself in trouble with it. Yeah, that certainly happens at times. Yeah, I think we are over time, guys. I want to close with something here that's just coming to mind is I haven't really asked uh, Andrew if he wants to do the, you know, veteran gives the younger guy advice thing, you know, for baseball. <laughs> but, you know, I think this is, is maybe more important than baseball is Spencer is a recently married, you know, man with a, an intimidating mustache. <laughs> I, um, I remember, Andrew, a handful of years back when you were still playing, I forget if it was spring training or an off-season event, but you had this really great, well, I guess for lack of a better term, mountain man look to you with a uh, longish hair and uh, 
and a pretty bushy beard. And uh, you told me that it was going to come off fairly soon, which it did, <laughs> because your wife wasn't uh, too keen on it. So you should give Spencer advice in regard to appearance and keeping his wife happy. Well, hopefully your facial hair is not a deal breaker. Hopefully your uh, relationship is stronger than that because I I do have a kind of a, a mustache thing going on right now. And my wife is says she's not a huge fan, but I don't think she's leaving over it. We, uh, we're pretty happy. And uh, I think that you have an amazing time in your life right now where you're playing in the major leagues and you're traveling the country and, you know, let her be a part of it and enjoy it would be my advice and uh, enjoy all the places you get to go. Don't just sit in your hotel room either. I, that's something that always kind of bugged me is, you know, I, I love, you know, for me, it was as simple as just getting a cup of coffee and kind of walking around and people watching. And uh, you mentioned you're getting into vinyl. I would usually look up a, a record store or a wine shop or something like that. And, and that would kind of give me my walking target and uh, spend the day exploring cities. And uh, if you can do that with your wife some before, you know, kids tend to change everything. Doesn't sound like you have kids yet, but, you know, take advantage of this time of your life because it, it really is. Uh, it's a lot of fun. And, you know, I certainly look back on it fondly. Yeah, that's great advice. That's kind of the same advice I've been getting from guys like Colin McHugh or or even Charlie Morton, Max Fried, these guys that have been doing it for a little bit. And yeah, no, that's 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 cool. Yeah, and vinyl is definitely cool. My uh, daughter, <laughs> who is uh, I think maybe a year or maybe two years older than Spencer, Andrew actually met my daughter when she was in high school. She has got into vinyl lately, so. Driving the prices up on everybody. Oh man, yeah. <laughs> the, the price of vinyl is uh, is kind of scary high now. But hey, vinyl's cool. And uh, hey, and it was cool to have uh, the two of you guys on. Certainly. So you know, thanks Spencer, thanks Andrew for making uh, repeat appearances. Andrew, this uh, I think is actually your third, right? I think that's what you said. Yeah, I, I I know at least once, but yeah, sure. Third sounds good. You may have been the first guest that I had when when I started hosting these, actually. So I think that's right. I think I remember working through the first one, uh, the the technological issues we were trying to figure out. Yes, and I was probably even a worse podcast host than I am now. So <laughs> <laughs> not at all. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, David. Welcome to another segment of Fangraph's Backstories. I'm Ben Clements, your host for this series, and I'm joined this week by Alex Eisert. Hey, Alex, how's it going? Good. Thanks for having me, Ben. Yeah, thanks for coming on. <laughs> I, mean, I sound like a, a host or something. I mean, not really. I'm just basically pestering my coworkers to come on this show. But <laughs> it's good to have you here. And this is one where I don't actually know that much about you. So it'll be nice both to let the readers hear and to let me hear. So... I'm going to ask you the first question that I ask everybody, which is a little bit more fresh top of mind for you than it is for most of us. How did you join Fangraphs? Yeah, yeah. So I was listening to your interview with Jay from last week, and I don't have nearly as much professional experience as him. So I'm just going to start my story. <laughs> Who does? Yeah, true. <laughs> right from the beginning. So my first fantasy baseball league, I was nine years old, and I was already co-managing a team with my dad. But by the end of the season, I had pretty much taken over as the sole manager. And the next year, I ended up commissioner of my own league. The year after that, so I was 11, I bought my first version of Out of the Park Baseball, and I saw Moneyball in theaters. So from a very young age, I had this special interest in the analytical side of the game. Yeah, so you were just like in it early. Commissioner after a year of fantasy, is a, that's like quite a trajectory. You'll never keep that up. I guess, <laughs> yeah. Unless you write at Fangraphs. So actually... <laughs> 
Yeah. No, eventually I moved on to Atanu, you know. Ooh, yeah, the, the hard stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, probably before I was technically supposed to be on Atanu. You're supposed to be 18 to have an account. <laughs> but, you know, I needed to continue the quick upward trajectory. So Yeah, that's the only place to go. So did that lead to writing from there? Well, so when I was, yes, so when I was 16, I went to the Fangraphs meetup uh, that was at Staten Island. And that was like around when I started playing Atanu and, you know, religiously reading the site. But meeting the writers is what really inspired me to start writing myself. I felt that I found my people. And I really, there are a few people that I really especially enjoyed speaking with. Jeff Sullivan, who gave me insight into his deep dives on players. Eno Saris gave me fantasy advice. And Ben Lindbergh, who signed my copy of The Only Rule Is It Has to Work. Not sure if any of them remember me as anything more than an annoying kid that day, but meeting them was very formative, and I modeled my craft after theirs. And that summer, I participated in a two-week Moneyball program at Wharton. Um, It was like, yeah, it was like a a little sports statistics course, and I started a a sports statistics blog with a friend from there. So things just lined up really well there, I guess, that like you met all these guys from Fangraphs. I mean, honestly... We're all trying to be Jeff in one way or another. So yes. <laughs> he's, he's a good person to talk to. Yeah. And then at the same time had the uh, had the Moneyball, I don't know, boot camp or whatever you want to call it. And yeah. that seemed like a very good way to end up wanting to write and wanting to write about statistics. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do think that um, like many other, you know, aspiring baseball analysts my age, Moneyball has always been like a central part of their journeys. Yeah. And it only continued to be. So in college, that's so that's when I really fell in love with psychology and cognitive science. And but I also started so my studies, I focused on my studies um, my first year because it was a really turbulent time, you know, getting my feet on the ground and everything. Yeah. But my second year, I sought out baseball related opportunities around campus and I started writing for the college newspaper. Later, I was the sports editor and then the senior editor. Did you go to Penn? No, I went to Vassar. Got it. Mm-hmm. So small school, liberal arts. Yeah. And I think um, Adam Horowitz, who's who's in the Beastie Boys, yeah. he went there. And his sister, Rachel Horowitz, was the producer from the Moneyball movie. Yeah. And so I think that's how she saw one of my stories in the newspaper about Moneyball. But she commented on it. Oh, nice. So Moneyball continued to be a part of my story there. <laughs> yeah, the combination of like, I like statistics, and then the story was like a bunch of nerds taking on the jocks who were always cooler than them, really, really resonates. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it, yeah. It for me as well. <laughs> yeah, especially, I mean, for someone who I did play baseball too, mm-hmm. also starting from a young age, but I ended up having to quit by the time that I was 14 due to injuries. And that also like kind of instigated the true enamoration with Moneyball. That was like around when I read the book for the first time, I could finally understand it at that point. Uh, So yeah, and that also like throughout high school, I participated in what sports I could, but I often found myself re-injured. And so I would skip practice in favor of an out of the park session or fantasy research or writing an article. And it was it was tough having physical limitations that early on in my life. But baseball really helped me cope. And I also spent a lot of time introspecting during that period. So that gave rise to my interest in psychology. Yeah, I kind of previewing what we're going to talk about at the end of this. But psychology and baseball have a really interesting overlap. Well, I mean, there's a lot of human beings playing this game that is really heavily mental. 
And so naturally, there's going to be a lot of occasion to think about the psychology that goes through them. Um, I think you and I are some of the people who write about this the most at Fangraphs. Mm-hmm. You know, Russell Carlton is a, like, that's his job. He's yes. a real life psychologist who writes about baseball. And I always find those articles to be incredibly interesting. So it, it is no surprise to me that through that uh, lane, it becomes like baseball writing becomes both like rewarding because everyone's like, wow, I haven't thought about this and really fun to do. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I really love your, the carnival game article because you start out by talking about that, you know, all the mind games that happen, but then also about how we can, we can marvel at the, the physical specter of the sport too. And that's honestly something that, you know, as I've gone more into this side of the game, it's been a little lost on me. Uh, so I try not to forget that too. So let's, uh, let's go back to you started your own statistics blog. Yeah, so I started my own statistics blog with my friend from the Moneyball program. So I kept writing through the end of high school. Sometimes I contributed to the Fangrass community even. I think that if you actually look on my blog roll, if you scroll down far enough, you can find a few of them. It's <laughs> awesome. Yeah. So as I was writing for the um, newspaper in college, I started advising the baseball team also on uh, lineups and strategy. And that also led to this research project on competitive balance in minor league baseball with my economics professor. That was something I worked on throughout the pandemic. I actually kind of, at that point in my life, I was kind of considering going into psychology, like clinical psychology. And I just thought about like, what if I was a a clinical psychologist during the pandemic, how hard that would be. And so that kind of steered me again towards baseball. Yeah. Yeah. It does seem really hard. (laughs) Yeah. So I, and also at that time, I coincidentally was starting this research project on competitive balance in minor league baseball. We actually just finished a working paper that's now publicly available, but that project was just, it was a lot of fun to just look at the history of the minor leagues. And half of what I did that summer of 2020 was just researching old teams and like seeing what became of them. Like, you know, all the name changes and location changes and league shifts and all that stuff. Yeah. So really kept me sane that summer. That was a tough summer to stay sane. So yes. <laughs> Good work minor league baseball. Yes. <laughs> so the next year in college is when I like really started. I was like, all right, okay. So I'm going to go back, steer back towards baseball again. And I thought about but wait a second, like this psychology work I've done, it's not for not, you know, I can definitely integrate that into baseball. And I had planned to major just in psychology, but my cognitive science professor, which is a different thing, mm-hmm. it's like more of just a broad study of the mind and incorporates like artificial intelligence and that sort of thing. And so my professor, when I was a junior, said that if I added a cog sci major, he would work on a baseball thesis with me. So naturally I added the major. He made you an offer you couldn't refuse. Exactly. And the thesis, which I briefly mentioned in the last time I was on the podcast, is it started with this fascination of the idea that some hitters just guess before a pitch is thrown. Right. So my professor and I devised this plan to get at that using simple recurrent neural networks, which basically are neural networks that analyze time series. And we recreated trajectories of every pitch from 2019 Mm -hmm. using the standard nine parameter fit. So velocity, acceleration, initial position, and three dimensions. Yeah. And we added some noise and 
we task the neural network with predicting the speed and location of a pitch from these data and also spin rate and spin axis. So we wanted to use the neural network to learn about how human hitters anticipate pitches. So we fed it several time steps of data 13 milliseconds apart, um, which is approximates the frame rate of the human visual system. Okay. So we had this one condition there where we fed the neural network time steps until about 156 milliseconds before pitch arrival, which was the closest we could get to 150, which mm -hmm. is how long it takes to swing. And we trained it individually on each pitcher in the data set with a large enough sample. And the errors in this condition correlated with measurements of human hitter errors like swing strike rate and chase rate. So that made us think maybe humans aren't guessing. They're kind of taking the pitch as it comes and doing their best to swing exactly 150 milliseconds before pitch arrival because in this condition, the model failed when humans failed. That's interesting. Yeah. And yeah, this is something I definitely am thinking of bringing to Fangraphs as well. I could update it for 2022. We used 2019 since 2020 was a mess and 2021 yeah. was incomplete. <laughs> so <sense>. yeah, <laughs> but you can also use this iteration of the model to kind of think about deception as a whole. They take more overt data on trajectory, possible tunneling and spin into account all in one metric, which I think is pretty cool. And you can slice the errors even further and look at which pitchers the model struggled with in terms of predicting speed versus which it struggled with in terms of predicting location. So then you could help those individual pitchers improve either speed or speed differential than others, movement or movement differential. Uh, you can kind of pinpoint what's what they're struggling with. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So that seems like you've kind of had a leg up on baseball research from what most of us are doing. Yeah, yeah. I felt really lucky to have a, a professor who was willing to listen to me rant about baseball. And I actually, I did try to parlay the thesis during my senior year into an MLB internship of some sort, but to no avail. So I ended up taking this scouting job at Sports Info Solutions for the summer. Mm -hmm. And I kept up my writing at Pitcher List. Yeah. And that's kind of where I started on the swing mirroring stuff. I kind of shifted my focus to cognitive biases versus like the deep learning. Yeah. My economics research professor also does a lot of behavioral economics work in sports. So that's what kind of inspired me to do that shift. And also, frankly, it's easier to do that kind of research on your own. Yeah. With less, you know, computational resources. Yeah. That makes perfect sense. Yeah. <laughs> but I can definitely, I'm definitely still thinking about revisiting it. A visit to Vassar might be in order at some point during this offseason and their their processors. <laughs> and so I guess from working at SIS and writing at PitcherList, that brings us to, I guess, this fall when Fangraphs put out a call for contributors. Yes. Yeah. I actually, so they put out the call in June. Yeah, um, I'm way off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, we started in the fall, though, so you got that part. Ah, okay. But yeah, I applied in June. And I hadn't heard back from them all summer. So I had kind of assumed that I didn't get it. And I was finishing up at SIS and I was just going to come back to back home to New York City uh, in the fall and continue writing for a pitcher list. And then I heard from Fangrass. And I also so I was also writing for Sports Info over the summer. Mm -hmm. And one thing I wrote about was checked swings which got me really excited about deception all over again. I actually used one of your gifts from your wildest swing strike piece for that article. 
Uh, check swings are very interesting and very hard to track unless you're literally watching like an SIS. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, so that I was like, I can't write about this anywhere else. Uh, I, I don't know where otherwise where I'm going to get the opportunity to write about this. Yeah. But anyway, so I used your GIF and that's possibly how it came about that there was an effectively wild episode in late August on check swings that mentioned my study. Maybe they linked it through the GIF use there. But incidentally, that episode came the day before I was interviewed. And so I had to bring it up in my interview. And then I think Meg and, and David realized that they had to hire the guy that they had already cited. So <laughs> here I am now. Uh, I don't think it quite works that way. But, uh, <laughs> you know, we're glad to have you. And to be honest, you have a pretty, you had a pretty robust body of work for coming in here. But mm -hmm. I do think that it kind of speaks to something that Fangraphs is trying to do that, hey, we like Look, Moneyball is interesting. Like you said, it's how everyone got into it yeah. at this point. But that's not really what it's about anymore. It's not about Jonah Hill being like, you know, this hitter hits home runs. People don't like him because he's fat. We're going to sign him. Like, that's, yeah. we've kind of moved past that. So before I get into talking about Solomon Ash with you, I want to finish out the Fangraphs backstories template, as it were, by asking you, what is your favorite baseball memory? Okay, so I have a top three. Perfect. That's uh, that's kind of what I was hoping everyone to have. <laughs> okay, great, great. So my third one was I saw the Johan Santana no-hitter in person. Ooh, in person. That's great. Yes, yes. My only no-hitter in person. And it was not a combined one, so yeah, a real deal. No mm-hmm. And so, so my uncle is on the board of Project ALS, as is a Wilpon. So when the Wilpons owned the Mets, they used to have a game every year where they mm -hmm. designate a section, usually just over the right field fence for board members and their families and friends. And that year just so happened to be the Nohan game. Wow. But I'll tell you why it's not my favorite memory. There was one home run in that game, Lucas mm -hmm. Duda's, and it went to the bullpen right in front of where I was sitting with my friend who I had so generously invited. And guess what? They threw the ball to him and not me. <laughs> See, if you hadn't invited him, you'd have that ball. I know. It's my generosity that killed me there. As so often happens. Yeah. <laughs> well, okay. So my next memory, though, there was more generosity directed towards me. So that's why it gets the edge over the first one. Uh, <laughs> it was game two of the 2009 World Series. So even though the previous, you know, the Nohan game, it was a, a Mets game, obviously. I grew yeah. up in Manhattan, and I'm actually a third-generation Yankees fan. And I actually just started contributing to Pinstripe Alley, too. But uh, for this game two of the World 2009 World Series, my dad got us tickets, maybe as a reward for taking on the bulk of the work of, of our fantasy team that year. And... My uncle, the same one who's on the board of Project ALS, had somehow, I still don't know to this day, gotten a World Series foul ball, maybe it was from game one, and had it hand-delivered to me while I was at the game. Wow. And to top it all off, the Yankees won that day on the back of seven strong from A.J. Burnett, and I also got to see Pedro, albeit in a losing effort, but it was my second time seeing him. I also got to see him at Shea Stadium a few years before that, but... Mariano Rivera notched a two-inning save. Hideki Matsui and Mark Shera homered. There was a pre-game Jay-Z Alicia Keys concert where they sang Empire State of Mind. It was pretty yeah, perfect. That was the Empire State of Mind year. <laughs> yep. <laughs> that was that year. 
I and forgot that about that. Yeah. Yeah. That was, um, I lived in New York then and that was mm-hmm. really like sweeping like every New York sporting event, but also every aspect of life. Yes. Yeah. Although when Jay-Z said, I made the Yankee hat more famous than the Yankee game, there were some murmurs among the crowd. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe the wrong place for that one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that game was pretty perfect. But there's something about the imperfect that makes this last story my favorite memory. A-Rod's last game. I don't remember this one, so I'm very curious. Yeah, so it has personal import. As soon as the team announced when the game would happen, my friend bought four tickets for the two of us and our dads. And so throughout my life, I had a love-hate relationship with A-Rod. When he was first traded to the team, I was a little kid, I worshipped him. And when he opted out of his deal after 2007 and cost the Yankees a ton of subsidized money from the Rangers, I hated him. I was an angry seven-year-old, so I threw my A-Rod <laughs> shirt in the trash, only to dig it out when he eventually re-signed. And then I loved him again when he raked for the next four years, hated him when he was suspended for all of 2014, loved him when he bounced back in 2015. You get the idea. Yeah, that's A-Rod for you. Exactly. But all of that went out the window when the Yankees let him take the field in the last inning of his last game. That was the only time he took the field that year. And the Bronx crowd was louder than I'd ever heard it. And it brought me to tears. My childhood. (laughs) That's A-Rod. Yep. And now he's in his second year on the ballot. Yeah. I mean, it seems like he won't get in. Yeah. I guess maybe that's more for Jay to opine on. But I hope he does because... You can't really tell the story of baseball in the 21st century without A-Rod. Yeah. I am undecided on on whether I hope he does or hope he doesn't. <laughs> yeah, I guess I'm a, a very big haul, kind of broad, broad-based, broad if someone's part of the story of baseball, put him in mm-hmm. kind of guy. But I don't know. I can't imagine baseball in the last 20 years without A-Rod and his weird feud slash admiration slash little brother status with Jeter. Oh my God. Yeah. And just all of this, like really, really just, I can't imagine I'm not a Yankees fan and I never have been. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't a Rangers fan and I'm not a Mariners fan. And I still just <laughs> gave up a big part of like the baseball that I've experienced. Yeah. I guess we're getting kind of far afield here, but those, <laughs> that's a pretty solid uh, top three. Yeah, no, I'm, I was writing this out and I was like, wow, I've had some great baseball memories already. Yeah, that's uh, that's very solid. Mm-hmm. I thought it was going to be hard to top Jay's watching a no hitter on TV live, as mm-hmm. a and you know of a famous pitcher, and then you got uh, one of the most famous no hitters of all time in person. Yeah, yeah, and that was kind of the the end of Johan's uh, era of dominance too. Yeah, I mean, in retrospect, a sad day, but also a very happy day. Yeah, my dad still says to this day that. You know, he thinks the, you know, 150 pitches or however many he threw that day is that's what did him in. Yeah, I think that's a hotly contested issue, whether that game really mattered so much for him. And it might have. Yeah. So uh, I was thinking of some awful transition I could do here, but I'm just not going to. <laughs> I want to talk about your swing mirroring article, mm-hmm. because as we were mentioning in uh, in an earlier part of this segment, you and I both seem to write about psychology a lot. I was initially going to be an econ and psychology double major in in college and I dropped it because UVA just had a ton of statistics requirements in their psychology major and I was just Mm. bored. I I had done statistics in like the math department that didn't Mm. count for psychology stats and I was just like I'm not doing this again whatever like I can't can't 
do these classes again. But I still find psychology very interesting. And like try and, you know, behavioral economics is kind of an overlap of that anyway. I really enjoy the idea of batters just watching the guy before them and then swinging mm-hmm. too much or too little. <laughs> like it feels so much like the way that I play sports. And I feel like kind of Sabermetrics 1.0 was learning that athletes are nothing like you and that like clutch doesn't exist yep. and all that. And then now it's it's kind of fun to learn that like, no, it kind of does. And little behavioral biases can... Uh, can happen to you. They can happen to me. They can make me buy the wrong candy or the wrong vegetable at the grocery store, mm-hmm. or they can make Aaron Judge swing too much or too little. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. stars, they're just like us. So uh, why don't you tell me a little bit about what you found? Yeah, yeah. So there, you know, obviously for all the players that eventually reach the majors, there's some psychological weed out process. Um, you know, yeah. you have to be pretty strong mentally to make it to the show. Yeah, but there's still individual differences and. You know, the, the post-Moneyball enterprise of baseball statistics has been kind of, you know, to research these ever-thinner slices of the game. And that's yes. also the enterprise of behavioral economics, which is to kind of look at the edge cases. You know, we have this these models, these old models that look at the very general case, and they capture a lot of people. But then there are also people on the fringes or even differences among the average and so that was kind of my influence. But basically, you know, the basic idea of Ash conformity is that you either do what other people are doing because you think they know more than you, or you just want to fit in with them. And so the first thing that I looked at was how batters responded after the previous hitter got a hit. Right. And I think the most interesting part of that was that home runs did increase first pitch swing rate, but they did so the least of any other hit probably because home runs clear the bases and the more runners or the closer your runners are to home, the more urgency there is to put the ball in play and swing on the first pitch. Yeah. You did a really good job like structuring this article where early on I was like, no, Mm -hmm. no, no wait, I have an objection. And then you're like, Oh, here's that covered. (laughs) Yeah. 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 No, I definitely, I approach it very scientifically as somebody who did major in psych and has done scientific research. I'm always thinking about controls and counter arguments. I also actually was a philosophy minor. So the, the whole enterprise of, of philosophy is, you know, making an argument and then dreaming up counter arguments that you can argue yeah. against. But basically, so what Ash might say for this is that if the guy hitting before you gets a hit, you want to emulate him and also swing because you think that he knows more than you in that he got a hit. Yeah. When I think of Ash conformity, I always think of, um, you know, how when you're a kid and you're parents would tell you, would you jump off a bridge if your friends were yeah. doing it? Yep. And it's like almost definitely yes. Like, I don't <laughs> think they're stupid. And if all of them are doing it, like, there's probably a reason. Yep. Exactly. Maybe they know more than me or I right. just want to fit in with them. I don't want to stand out as the there, guy who gets to jump off the bridge. high chance this bridge is not the place to be if all these people I trust are jumping off of it. Yeah. <laughs> I actually, I was thinking of writing that like as the intro for my, for this most recent article, but I was like, hmm, that's a little morbid. Let's uh, stick to something, something else. Minecraft <laughs> audio. That's what that's for. Yeah. <laughs> so I also was interested though in, in this, in the idea of kind of just wanting to fit in rather than thinking like, oh, you know, the people before me had success. They might know more than I do. I should copy them. Right. So I found that strikeouts also increase first pitch swing rate. And somebody commented this. I, I think I alluded to it, but 
the basic idea there, I think, is that some hitters are hoping to avoid the same fate as their predecessor by putting the ball in play early in the yeah. count. But in the case of swing strikeouts, maybe there is something there just like about wanting to fit in by swinging like your predecessors. There's also like a very, a very difficult uh, thing to disentangle is yeah. that more strikeouts are compiled by higher strikeout rate pitchers. Mm-hmm, right. And so when you are facing someone post a strikeout, you're slightly more likely than the average batter to be facing a pitcher who strikes a lot of people out. Yeah. And that maybe that's a guy that you want to swing against early. That's like a just a right. maddeningly difficult to disentangle from this, I think. And yeah. Probably not worth it. Yeah. No, I think if I were to to write a, you know, a true like scientific study about this, yeah. there would be kind of a a series of analyses from the point of view of hitters and then a series from the point of view of pitchers. Yeah. I think Davey and I were talking about that last time about how like we write one article and then we're like, wait a second, we can write the same article from the point of view of pitchers or just like looking at defense. And (laughs) Yeah. If I've learned anything from writing here for a few years now, it's that if you can write one article about a decision that people are making, Mm -hmm. then you should probably write like three. Because then A, you get three articles, and B, it's probably interesting to think about it from multiple perspectives. One cognitive bias that I think we have as sports viewers Mm -hmm. is that it's really hard. Like once you put yourself in one person's shoes, then you're there. Like once you anchor your perspective, then you think about that. But it's an adversarial game. There's two people making decisions. And that can be really hard to do, but it's nice because then you get more stuff to write about. And more stuff to write about is definitely something that we all like. Definitely. Yeah. Obviously, like hitters swing more at pitches that are strikes, regardless of what happened before. Right. But I was like, you know, obviously they don't necessarily control whether the pitch is a strike. That's more on the pitcher. So I was like, that's for the next article. (laughs) Yeah. There's definitely an article to be written here about like, do pitchers throw in the strike zone less often after giving up a home run? Or do they throw in the strike zone more often after giving up a home run? Because now the bases are empty. Yeah. It's, uh, there's just, again, that's a great thing about analyzing baseball is that. Not only are there a lot of things to analyze about people's mindsets, there's just so many variables. It's very yeah. fun. Yeah, and everything is discrete. Yeah. So I am, I am though, working on another piece about this that I'm calling the Susceptibility Index, which is very much a working title. The Ash Susceptibility Index, where I'm looking at which players had a higher than average first pitch swing rate increase after teammate strikeouts or teammate hits, and which players were anti-conformists or, you know, had uh, first pitch swing rates that decreased after strikeouts and or hits. Interesting. And I came up with one name for you for a player that fits in the anti-conformist category for both strikeouts and hits. I love it. Jordan Alvarez. Ooh, Jordan Alvarez may be my favorite hitter. So that, that's, uh, that's very, it's very enjoyable. So mm-hmm. uh, he swings less often after strikeouts and less often after hits? He swings less often than average. So he swings like about yeah. the same you know, regardless of ah, whether they're strikeouts. So he's just before. immune to it. Uh-huh. So he's just I, up I there, mean, got his eyes closed, thinking. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was thinking like he just limits the changes in his approach, regardless of situation, because it works well. So yeah, that is indeed like that should work well. And you know, if you detect your own biases, it's it's good to try to try to get rid of them to the extent that they're negatively affecting your performance. Mm-hmm. I feel like your name. You got to do a little bit better than that. Maybe that's the thing to brainstorm on. Because I feel like the data is very interesting. Susceptibility index. Yes. Eh. <laughs> Bridge number. 
Yeah, yeah, that's the working title for sure. <laughs> All right, well, on that note, Alex, it was great reminiscing with you about your path up. It was great talking about your baseball memories and great learning about this. And I'm sure I'll talk to you more about both psychology and just baseball going forward on here. Thanks for coming on and indulging me in this pet project. Yeah, no, for sure. It was great talking with you. I always love talking psychology and baseball. Yeah, there's not enough of us around. I know. <laughs> All right. So uh, for Alex Isert, I'm Ben Clemens. Thank you for joining us on this segment of Fangraphs Audio. This has been Fangraphs Audio. Thank you to Spencer Strider, Andrew Miller, and Alex Isert for taking the time. And thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, consider sending it to a friend or two of yours. Maybe tweet about it. The recommendation really helps us out. After you have browsed the Fangraphs.com shop and considered some merch or a membership, make sure to also sign up for the Fangraphs newsletter. It is the best way to keep up on the lots of cool things we have going on at Fangraphs, and we continue to do more and more cool stuff that we're excited to share with you. We'll be back next week. Be excellent to each other, and we'll talk to you next time.